From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Polis sends a check, includes a letter, and Republicans cry foul, the latest from our public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland. Then mushrooms will be on the ballot in Colorado this fall, the psychedelic kind. This measure wouldn't allow the retail sale of mushrooms. There wouldn't really be like over-the-counter shops that you see now with marijuana. So Coloradans could go to what they're terming a healing center, where trained facilitators would administer the substances. And it may not be the only shroom question on the ballot. Later, Frank Lloyd Wright was not only an architect, but a designer of what filled his buildings, and a bit of a control freak. He had color-coded this chair according to its use in the building. Walk with us through a new Wright show at Denver's Kirkland Museum. If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A follow-up now to something Governor Jared Polis said on our show earlier this week. I had asked him about the Tabor refund checks hitting the mail. Will your name appear anywhere? Check envelope enclosed letter. Uh, that's a good question. I think it a mock-up check that we had here earlier, um, and it was signed by uh, the controller, the treasurer, those two people signed checks. There'll be a note from me explaining what this is, websites and phone numbers for people to call. That note, signed by Governor Polis, is now the subject of a campaign finance complaint. CPR's Benta Berkland is tracking developments. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. This complaint comes from the state GOP. What's the substance of it? So the head of the Colorado Republican Party, Christy Burton-Brown, alleges that Polis is using this letter to boost his re-election chances this year. So essentially, the complaint says it amounts to electioneering at the taxpayer's expense. And Burton-Brown says it misleads voters by refusing to say the word Tabor or Taxpayer's Bill of Rights and instead uses Polis's campaign language branding, and he calls this money the Colorado cashback. Uh, and just a quick recap, Tabor limits how much the state budget can grow from year to year, and it requires the government to pay back any excess money. So normally the refunds go out in the spring, but under a new bipartisan law, the checks are being sent months earlier in the coming weeks. To respond, the governor says, to inflation as families feel the crunch. How does Polis's campaign respond to the complaint? As Polis explained when he was talking to you, Ryan, he said he sent out this letter because he wanted to make sure people didn't think the check was a scam or a loan, and he wanted people to know it's legitimate and that they can cash it. Mm. It's $750 for individual taxpayers and $1,500 for joint filers. And Polis's campaign said this complaint was unfounded and, quote, should we expect the Colorado GOP to file a complaint against Trump's letters and checks, too? Let's get real here. This is all just baseless claims. 
I would note, though, that unlike Polis, Trump actually put his name on the stimulus checks that went out prior to the 2020 election. Any sense whether this complaint is likely to go anywhere, Bento? I asked an election law attorney that very question. Mm. Mario Nicholas mostly represents Republicans. He's not involved in the governor's race. And he said sitting elected officials like the governor have leeway when it comes to communications that could be considered within the regular scope and course of their duties. And Nicholas thinks it'll be tough for the state GOP to try to prove a violation here because the letter doesn't explicitly mention the upcoming election or urge recipients to vote for polis. I think that there's a difference between, hey, has he violated a law, or hey, has he done something that's, you know, seems a little cynical. So things can be cynical, but not unlawful. And I think that's exactly where, where we're at with this letter that's being put in the mail. Benta, before we let you go, I want to check in on another story you're covering, and that's the recount in the Secretary of State's race. That just wrapped up yesterday, right? Correct. Yes. Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters requested that recount, and she accused the election of being rigged after results showed Peters losing by a wide margin to former Jefferson County Clerk Pamela Anderson. So following the recount, the result was unchanged. Peters still lost by about 14 percentage points. Peters gained 13 votes, as did Anderson. And then Mike O'Donnell was the other candidate. He narrowly got third in the race, and he gained 11 votes. And some some of those discrepancies with the votes, much of that was because Elbert County didn't process 37 votes originally because the, the ballots were mistakenly in the wrong bin. And the recount cost Colorado, or the, the total cost, I should say, is a quarter of a million dollars. Peters was required to pay for that under state rules, not the state. And that's required when a race is not close. Not even close. Thank you so much, Benta. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Legalizing psychedelic mushrooms will be on the ballot in Colorado this November. If voters approve, this state will become the second to legalize them after Oregon. CPR election intern Max Lubers is following this. Howdy, Max. Thanks for having me. This measure would decriminalize and then legalize psilocybin mushrooms. Let's start with the decriminalization aspect first. How does that work? In this case, it wouldn't be a crime under Colorado law to grow or possess or gift what they're calling a personal amount of psychoactive mushrooms, and that's just for people over 21. The measure doesn't define or limit what that personal amount means. When I talked to organizers, they said that they didn't really want to open up punishment for people who might have to take more depending on their body type or other factors. Hmm. But keep in mind that the federal government still considers psilocybin a Schedule One drug. So that means the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration has designated it as having no currently accepted medical use and a high risk for abuse. The current U.S. attorney for Colorado declined to comment with me on this initiative, but I spoke to his predecessor, Jason Dunn, and he emphasizes that it will still be illegal under federal law. You ask someone about Colorado, almost always the first response is, oh, the the marijuana state. And so, you know, we're going to put ourselves on a map again for being the drug state. This measure wouldn't allow the retail sale of mushrooms. So there wouldn't really be like over-the-counter shops that you see now with marijuana. Uh 
You also couldn't legally ask someone to pay you for what you'd grown, for example. You could only give it to them free of charge. There will be some sales allowed, but that gets a little bit more into the legalization side of things. Right. Okay. We've been talking about the decriminalization. Tell us more about the legalization. Yeah. On top of the decriminalization, the Natural Medicine Health Act would set up a legal framework for people to access mushrooms. So Coloradans could go to what they're terming a healing center, where trained facilitators would administer the substances. So they would pay for that service rather than be able to, like, bring the mushrooms home. Where would these centers be in Colorado and, like, who would these facilitators be? If it gets passed, most of those specifics will be up to state regulators, along with an advisory board of 15 people appointed by the governor. DORA, that's the Department of Regulatory Agencies, would decide what education and training people would get and how to qualify for a license for one of these healing centers. Hmm. And DORA will have to start taking license applications by September of 2024. And Colorado localities wouldn't be able to fully ban healing centers from their boundaries. What does the support look like for this measure? Proponents turned in over 200,000 signatures to the Secretary of State's office, and they did that six weeks before the deadline. So I spoke to a consultant for the measure, and he told me that their paid signature collectors could get about 40 signatures within an hour. That's a pretty high rate in the industry. But signatures don't necessarily mean a yes vote in the fall. Hmm. Denver voted really narrowly to decriminalize psychoactive mushrooms back in 2019. So it's hard to say what will happen in November. Why do organizers want Coloradans to vote yes on this? I spoke with Veronica Lightning Horse Perez, and she's one of the co-proponents on the initiative. And she says that people shouldn't face a criminal penalty or a fine just for using mushrooms. We've been using this safely and effectively. We knew it was a powerful medicine, so it's not something to be used recreationally or played with. But this this isn't new to humanity. Organizers also say it would be good for Colorado's mental health crisis because it would give a new treatment option to people. Some research has linked mushrooms to potential benefits for people suffering from anxiety, depression, and PTSD. But this point is pretty contentious for folks who oppose the measure. Now, what are some of the reasons people might vote no? I spoke to some moms who are concerned about children getting access to mushrooms. The decriminalization and legal framework only applies to people over the age of 21. But for those under that age, the highest penalty that they'd face is four hours of drug counseling. They didn't buy into that idea that it would help people's mental health. Here's one of the parents I spoke to, Don Reinfeld. If they think it can help with mental health, then they should prove it. We have institutions already set up in our country to do that process. There's also another group who is for decriminalization, but doesn't really support this approach or its legal framework. And they're also trying to get on the ballot. Absolutely. So their measure is Initiative 61. It would decriminalize psychoactive mushrooms and a number of other psychoactive plant-based substances. But they say it's too soon to legalize them. Okay, so they would do the decriminalization, but not that second step. Yeah, so I spoke with co-organizer Melanie Rose Rogers, and she was particularly concerned about equity in this current measure that's on the ballot. State regulators would be required to incentivize demographic and cultural diversity for licenses, but Rogers told me that isn't enough. I'm just not interested in creating new industries where only rich white men can play and profit. And the people that have been using this legacy-wise, you know, won't be able to pay their way in. 
The organizers were also wary of the funding behind this initiative. A Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit has given the campaign over $2 million. Initiative 61 has until Monday to turn in signatures and try to get on the ballot. They're all volunteer-run, and they only have small donors backing them, so they say it's pretty difficult to meet the threshold of about 124,000 signatures. Speaking of difficulty, you have also reported on grassroots campaigns and the ballot process in general. Uh, Max, tell me what you found there. So only about half the states in the country actually allow citizens to petition for a measure to go on their state ballot, and Colorado is one of them. That process has been used to pass some pretty big laws, like legalizing recreational marijuana a decade ago. But I looked into the data, and I found that people vote no more than you might think. Since 2016, just under half the measures have failed. I talked with Josh Penry. He's a principal of a conservative campaign firm, and he's led the campaigns of many ballot measures. And he says that you have to mobilize a ton of voting blocks to get on the ballot, and especially to actually make it into law. Voters have a strong inclination towards the status quo, which means their inclination is toward the no. And so you really do have to mount the case, achieve a burden of proof. Hmm. Generally, he says that means you need the resources to get that campaign off the ground. Rick Ritter of RDI Strategies, that's a firm with a track record of winning liberal ballot measures, agreed. He estimated that you need about 7,000 hours just to collect signatures, not counting all the other work that goes into it. And that's if you're getting about 30 signatures an hour, which can be difficult to do, especially if it's a more controversial measure. So unless you have a huge volunteer base or the ability to pay signature collectors, it's pretty hard. Oh, it's fascinating. I actually went out with a volunteer to see the process for myself. Her name is Christy Hargrove, and she was collecting signatures for an initiative that would push more funding into the state education fund without raising taxes. Most of the people that she talked with actually agreed to sign, but she says it's still pretty difficult. You know, we're not professionals. We're just normal moms and dads and grandmas and just community members that believe strongly in something. And, you know, if you don't have the money to hire professionals to do it, you know, it's hard. Only a few measures have actually made it on the ballot so far, and come Monday, we'll see who submits signatures in time to get verified. No, oh, if you write a book about this, you should call it 7,000 hours. It's a lot <laughs> of a investment. Lot. Yeah. Max, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Max Lubers is a CPR election intern, and we'll be right back to hear about the exacting nature of architect and furniture designer Frank Lloyd Wright. We'll even sit in one of his chairs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast Music Blocks is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The gift of a lamp, that's what inspired a new Frank Lloyd Wright show at the Kirkland Museum in Denver. It celebrates the relationship between his architecture and his decorative art, including that lamp because Frank Lloyd Wright wasn't just about buildings. I visited the Kirkland with our new arts reporter, Eden Lane, 
where we met curators Christopher Heron and Becca Goodrum. Eden starts us off. How did the story of this lamp, which wasn't really a lamp when it began, inspire this entire exhibit? So it goes back to years ago, our founding director and curator, Hugh Grant, befriended a art collector and dealer named Lewis Newman. And he kept maintained that relationship over the years, and that led to the gift of what we were told was a Frank Lloyd Wright lamp. Obviously, if anyone gives you something by Frank Lloyd Wright, you need to <laughs> do your homework and check that out. So we did and reached out to an expert named Julie Sloan, who's written extensively about Wright's art glass pieces. And she identified these pieces as Frank Lloyd Wright designs. So we were very pleased to you know, get that far with it. It was authenticated. Yes, yeah. authenticated by but Sloan. But it wasn't a lamp when, she, uh, when it was... It wasn't first... a lamp. So she discovered that in 1907, Wright had used these two separate pieces of glass in an exhibition of his work at the Art Institute of Chicago. And you can see the pieces on a graphic that we have on the wall in the exhibition. And Lewis Newman's mother is actually the person who found these two pieces in a Chicago antique store in 1964. She recognized that these were right. She was a fan of his, a right enthusiast, I guess. Mm -hmm. And she took the pieces to a local metalsmith and had them made into, combined and made into a lamp. I wonder, Becca, as a curator, does that um, scandalize you to think that someone took something by Frank Lloyd Wright and made a lamp or had one made? <laughs> That's a great question. I think we kind of embraced that these two pieces um, kind of got a new life when she found them in this antique store because what happened to them after that 1907 exhibition is really a mystery. So they resurfaced in 1964 in this antique store and thankfully a right enthusiast found them and knew what they were and created this new piece and so they live on in a new way. Um, so I don't think it's like scandalous. Or, <laughs> I, we really love how they are put together and that they live together now because they were exhibited um, right next to each other in 1907 in a different way um, that, that you'll see in the show. The picture shows you how they were exhibited, but now they have a new life at Kirkland Museum thanks to um, a right enthusiast in the 60s. Can you also share how it was a graduation present? Because I think that's a lovely it's part a of the story. story. Wait, yes. a Frank Lloyd Wright graduation present. It was, not luggage, a lamp. Mom, mom of the year, for sure. Mom of the year of 1964. The decade, the decade maybe. Um, so, yeah, so it was a graduation gift for her son. So she found a local metalsmith, as Chris explained, and had these two pieces put together. And then... Um, we have an audio component to the exhibition as well. It's Bloomberg Connects, and we have the donors um, telling this story in the audio guide. So we definitely recommend downloading that if you come to the museum. But he tells a story of how he lived in a New York City apartment, and he had this lamp in the window, and it kind of just glowed, and people could see it from the street. And um, So it was kind of on public view, but mm. not really. But you could see it in their window, which I think is a really cute story. So it has become the beacon for this entire exhibit uh, since it was the beginning. And literally, it was the beginning. So we thought, you know, now that we have a Frank Lloyd Wright lamp in our possession, what are we going to do with it? We don't want to just put it out on a table with a tag on it. This is a big deal, right? So um, we built this exhibition around it. We have a very significant collection of Frank Lloyd Wright objects in the museum's permanent collection. 
So we thought, what a great time to focus on those pieces and really tell the story behind those pieces. I'll say the inscription here on the lamp says, seen here in public for the first time in over a hundred years. These two right art glass designs now have a new life at the Kirkland Museum. I guess we should describe them. I mean, it's sort of the height to me of craftsmen, Mm -hmm. of those, you know, lovely sharp angles and muted colors. Muted colors. He loves iridescent glass. You see that. Um, He loves those chevron shapes. And I think what's interesting and cool about um, right art glass designs is he's working kind of at the same time as um, Tiffany glass, but Tiffany tends to be more realism, um, flowers, and things like that, whole historic scenes sometimes. Right, it almost gets a little drippy, a totally. little rococo. Totally, great explanation. But Wright was really doing more abstract things and um, kind of abstracting plant life and different things like that. So you see that in the lamp, I think, too, in the geometric shapes. And those shapes do. are almost uh, a through line from Art Deco to Biedermeier to the arts and crafts movement. Absolutely. Okay, Eden, when we walked in... You were my guide initially, and you ran over to a chair, a Frank Lloyd Wright. Was it an office chair? It's, it's an office chair designed for the S.C. Johnson Family Company headquarters in Racine, Wisconsin, and it is a, a highlight of this exhibit for me because it's really beautiful and a little bit amusing. A little bit amusing. Could we walk over to another Wright piece, so a Wright chair, and maybe have you tell us about it? It seems to be made of metal with casters. It's got wheels, so that feels a little modern to me. And then it's kind of upholstered in like a dusty rose. What stands out to you about this Frank Lloyd Wright chair? It is a tubular metal construction painted. And the colors that you were mentioning, he had color-coded this chair according to its use in the building. And so this red color, this dusky red, was used in the accounting department. And it's on wheels so they could roll around on this big wide open floor that you see in the wall graphic behind the chair. Oh, see, if you sat in the rose chair, that meant you were in accounting. And then you can see in this photo, there are green chairs. I guess that meant you were in a different department. Some other department, I guess. I also note that this version that you have in the collection has four wheels, but you also depict the original design, which had some challenges. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So I think the curator that we talked to at the S.D. Johnson Company called it a problematic piece of furniture because it had three legs. And so originally it had originally it had three legs. And so you had to sit with both feet firmly planted in very correct posture because Wright believed that that was a problem in offices. And, I mean, he's not wrong. Uh-huh. We all kind of sit with bad posture. So he wanted this chair to force you to have good posture. And you did have to sit perfectly and really not move a muscle in order to not tip over. Um, but he got a lot of complaints. But he was reticent to change the design until, this is the best story, until one day he fell out of <laughs> a chair. And he finally was like, oh, all right, people, I, I guess you're right. I will redesign the chair to give it four legs like our example at Kirkland Museum. And it looks much more comfortable, I would say. I guess he, he got a taste of his own medicine. He got it, yes. Yeah. And he didn't have to cope with the hazard that the woman in the photo may have with scraping the back of her heel on, on that heels. one wheel in the I front. Know. When we look at this photo... It is, you can see a direct line from this workspace that he designed for S.C. Johnson's headquarters 
to office spaces of today. Can you, yeah. can you talk to me about that? All it's lacking really are the cubicle walls, but he has, he has set the space, uh, defined the space by filing cabinets and desks, so he has cut it up into workstations. But it's an open space, so almost like an open floor plan where the employees can interact with each other. It looks a little like our newsroom in a way. I was going to say, it looks like a very contemporary newsroom or like a trading floor. It it makes me wonder what the relationship is between Wright's furniture and his architecture. I mean, he's a bit of a micromanager, it seems to me. Right down to the dishes. Yes. Absolutely. In every way. And he designed dishes, right? Dishes, flatware, glasses, carpets. Mm -hmm. I could go on, right? Absolutely. This is a great example of Wright's concept of a total work of art in which he not only designed the building, but he designed all furnishings and fixtures for the inside of the building. And so if you look at the chair, you see the round cushions are a reflection of these giant round pillars that support the roof of this workroom. The colors come from the brickwork and the curving lines reflect all of the inside of the building. So the furniture are very much, is very much an extension of of the building and of the environment. The philosophy of that total work of art, we see it in philosophy, we see it in opera, we see it in all mm-hmm. disciplines, and it, it really does have its root in German philosophy. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. It comes from the German Gesamtkunstwerk. And as you said, I believe it might even go back to Richard Wagner, who was the original uh, coiner of the phrase. But um, Josef Hoffmann, who we did an exhibition on earlier in the year, was another practitioner of that idea. And uh, Wright believed in it wholeheartedly throughout his career. We see that in branding today with designers designing home goods from top to bottom throughout mm-hmm. the house. It, it's, it's really interesting to see the impact that it continues to have today. Well, that's, that's a fascinating point, Eden, because I think of the Denver Public Library, whose edition was done by Michael Graves, who then goes and does housewares for Target. You know, you can have a Michael Graves teapot. Speaking of scandalized, a word I used a little earlier in this conversation, I'm trying to imagine bringing my own chair in from home to a Frank Lloyd Wright building that has been designed within an inch of its life. Yeah, no, he would not have liked that. (laughs) Um, That definitely happened, of course, but if he could control it, he tried to. So one of my favorite examples of that is a home that... Frank Lloyd Wright designs for the Austin sisters that he called Broad Margin. And where was this home? This home was in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. And in this home, he again designed everything down to the furniture, um, the napkins, everything. You know, uh, he did it all. And in this particular case, it was one of his favorite projects. And after he was finished, he kind of couldn't let it go. And he found a vase that he wanted to go into the house. And so he sent it to the sisters and wrote a note on exactly what shelf it should be on, what, you know, how it should be facing, where they should put it in this house. Because again, he designed every detail. He wanted it to look a certain way. And then the sisters, you know, thought, oh my gosh, what a lovely gift from Frank Lloyd Wright. I'm so, you know, so pleased. But then, like, a week later, he sent them the bill for the vase. (laughs) It's just one of my favorite stories because he wanted complete control, and um, it just shows he really had a vision, for, and it shows his genius, I think, but also maybe a little bit of why he may have been, like, just a little bit hard to work with for a client. But he was brilliant, and his designs really do come together in this cohesive way that is really unparalleled, I would say. It's interesting that... 
we think of today this sort of thing being manufactured and designs just handed off, but that wasn't the case for Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, he had a little bit more input into how his designs were executed. Can you touch on that, please? I mean, like, did he have a hammer? Do we? No. <laughs> no, he wasn't making this stuff himself necessarily. No, but as you look at the public buildings, uh, this hotel, for example, you can see that the chairs were designed specifically for the space and where they would go. I think that just is part of the overall concept. You know, he, he really had a vision for the whole environment from the beginning. And so he would find craftsmen. He would find the people that would make the thing that he wanted to go into, into that environment for him. And that's why they don't really have a maker's mark on them, per se, because mm. they, they don't, it's not Frank Lloyd White branded. Exactly. But neither is the craftsman able to sign right. the work. Right, and that becomes a problem when you're researching things. You know, how do you how do you track these things down, and who? Some of these things we don't know exactly who who made them. You know, some so, of the the wood furniture, for example. Well, what were the biggest obstacles of finding the provenance of all the pieces you have here and pulling this together in chronological order the way you have? Yeah, Becca, your eyes widened as Eden asked that. <laughs> I mean, provenance is always difficult. Um, and thankfully, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright is so well-researched and there's so much information out there about him that I wouldn't say he's like, you know, the hardest one, but um, like it's always a challenge. And I think the best thing about Frank Lloyd Wright and the best thing about this exhibit is there were tons of people we could turn to for help on research about him and research about these objects. We made great connections with the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, with Avery Library, with Essie Johnson, with Price Tower. So we had all these experts around us to help us kind of fill in the gaps of our own knowledge and help us really make this exhibit as good as it could be. Price Tower is his high rise in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And given how many of the pieces in this show, the dining room table and chairs, the office table we've been looking at, this uh, rather substantial work table, there are depictions of these in photographs. So it seems to me that a photograph that says, this is a Frank Lloyd Wright space, would be of great benefit to you both. That really was one of the concepts behind the show. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we really wanted to tell the story behind these pieces and what better way to show them in their natural environment. We couldn't find uh, vintage photos of every one of them, but we did find quite a few. And so we were able to sort of reconstruct that original environment as we went. And so even down to, we, we thought of the colors we used for the pedestals that these are on. These are To display them. Yeah. So, for example, the S.C. Johnson chair we were just talking about had red floors. He used stained concrete for a lot of his Usonian pictures. So broad margin that Becca just mentioned was a stained concrete that was this red color. In a home. In a home. Fascinating. It's the same for this dining table with even the textile was designed and placed in a certain way. Color is such an important through line throughout this chronological progression of his work. Can Mm. you can you tell me a little bit about the the color? So Wright entered into a relationship with Martin Senor Paints in 1955. He was embarking on this idea, he worked with the Heritage Henredon Furniture Company at the same time, of producing like a mass-produced line of his own furniture. So the idea was, I guess, you could create your own Wright environment or Wright-inspired environment Mm. in your home. And the paints that we used came from some of his original 
Martin Senor paint palettes that we were able to track down. So the greens and the golds of the early arts and crafts give way to, like I said, the what he called Cherokee red floors of the later work. Wow, he really was like the, I don't know about the original, but he was an early kind of licensor, collaborator. If you like the Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, desk, you'll love our new paint scheme. Absolutely. I think he was a master at branding himself and marketing himself. And um, we see that today. You know, his name recognition is insane. He, He was really good at Um, like I said, that branding himself. Oh, that's fascinating. In other words, the reason so many of us know Frank Lloyd Wright is because Frank Lloyd Wright made sure that so many of us knew who Frank Lloyd Wright was. Yeah. Before we go, you can't sit on the chairs that we've been talking about or touch and turn on the lamp that we started with. But I understand we could sit in a Frank Lloyd Wright chair. Did you tell me that, Eden? I did. There is a theater room that that has a really wonderful little documentary that you can watch here. And the seats are designed by Frank Lloyd Wright for a theater that was refurbished. Our butts are occupying four of the 12, what, Frank Lloyd Wright theater seats? Theater seats. And you can tell the, the bases are a little odd because these were built into a cement theater floor that was sloped back, almost like a raked room. Can you talk to me about how you got these and and a little bit of their history? Because it's a really interesting story. And are you comfortable? I'm pretty comfortable. Yeah. I think they're pretty comfortable. I I agree. So these came out of a theater in Dallas, Texas that was refurbished in the early 80s. And as you said, the bases were added onto them later. These have been repainted and reupholstered. So uh, none of this is original, but they still feel pretty good and mm-hmm. and uh, are great guest seating. We've used these for guest seating for a while um, at the old building primarily. They haven't been out here yet, so we are happy to bring them out of storage and uh, use them again. Whenever I see Frank Lloyd Wright furniture, I'm always struck by how small it seems. And, you know, I'm 6'2", so that's probably part of the reason. But it, it does affirm for me that we've been getting bigger. Do you feel that? I think that's true. If you look at a lot of his furniture, it is made for... I'm not sure how comfortable I would be in any of that furniture either. Yeah. But, but these are pretty... I guess for a, a 1950s person, we've, uh, they fit pretty good. Not only our sizes have changed, but the way we congregate is different in that you know, we, we tend to lounge and look for comfort rather than sitting up to engage oh, one another. Because right. <laughs> he, was, he was so proper about posture. Posture, yes. <laughs> Sit up straight, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for visiting. We're glad to have you. Thank you. CPR arts reporter Eden Lane and I checked out the new show Frank Lloyd Wright Inside the Walls at Denver's Kirkland Museum. Our guides were curators Christopher Heron and Becca Goodrum. See the lamp that inspired the show along with the color-coordinated office chair we talked about at CPR.org. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We have our next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's the latest from nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. He contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art in his new book, Tracing Time. I see rock art like deeds to the land, whose signatures are the oldest 
When you see images painted or pecked on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Images of spirit figures and animals, depictions of battles, births, hunts, ceremonies, or geometric lines etched into stone. This land was claimed a long time ago, and you can read it right there on the rock. Tracing Time celebrates the ancient communication on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. Child weaves in his conversations with elders, scholars, and friends. Pick up a copy and join us September 6th in Grand Junction. We'd love to see our friends in Fruta, Clifton, Colburn, Palisade. Free tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. So read with us. The book is Tracing Time by nature and adventure author Craig Childs. Details, once again, at cpr.org slash turn the page. Okay, when we come back, Code Switch from NPR is coming to CPR. We'll meet one of the co-hosts. This is Colorado Matters. The CPR News climate team recently invited a group of listeners to help reforest the burn scar of 2020's Calwood fire, and we were all surprised by what we found. I can't imagine a more beautiful setting to do anything. It just makes you glad to be alive. I'm Miguel Otarola, and CPR News is covering the impacts of climate change across Colorado, including the ways that we're fighting it. Sign up for CPR's Climate Weekly Newsletter at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. NPR's Code Switch explores how race affects every part of society, from politics to pop culture. The hosts are two journalists of color who bring empathy and humor. Starting this weekend, you can listen to Code Switch on CPR News, Sunday mornings at 11, right after the best of Colorado Matters. My colleague Carla Jimenez spoke with co-host B.A. Parker. You joined the Code Switch team as the new co-host very recently. What are you hoping to bring to this show? I mean, hopefully a lot of weird enthusiasm is usually my (laughs) go-to. Describe that for me. Lots of things that are interesting to me, like I'm doing an interview with Katori Hall, who's the creator of a show called P-Valley. I'm working on a story about the diversity of trivia. Diversity of trivia. That sounds really interesting. Do you want to talk more about that or is that a spoiler alert? No, no, no. It's about how... There is sometimes like this idea of what is trivia is kind of gatekeeped and there's this lack of inclusion of what is considered mainstream trivia. And now there's this desire to be inclusive of many cultures, which is nice. But then you have certain trivia shows where they have these things and the contestants who aren't people who look like people of color not getting the answers correctly. Right. Okay, that's really interesting. Can you give us then like a a diverse trivia factoid? I think the one that I always go to is like, I do a lot of Oscar trivia. That's kind of been my <laughs> skill set since I was loving it on the quiz bowl team. Like Quivenzene Wallace is the only person born after 2000 to be nominated for an Oscar. Speaking of your trivia knowledge of the Oscars, you also used to be a film professor before you became yes. an audio storyteller. Tell us about that transition for you. I was a film professor for um, most of my 20s. And I... I guess I just decided, honestly, on a whim um, to apply for a fellowship with This American Life. And I, by some kind of twist of fate, got it. And then I had to leave teaching. And that's about it, which is kind of uh, weird to say out loud that you know I was <laughs> teaching and I saw 
a thing in an email. It's like, oh, that would be interesting. And with no expectation, I was going to get it and I was going to keep teaching and I got it. And now I'm in radio and I'm talking to you. Are there ways that you want to bring your knowledge of film to Code Switch? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's great beauty and culture that comes from film. I mean, a lot of growing up for me, a lot of my interaction with culture and my knowledge of identity and my my own identity as well as you know other cultural identities was through film for, for better or for, or for worse. And um, diving into that because I don't think we fully engaged in, I mean, there's talk about like identity politics, but there's, you know, really interesting meet in a discussion about the fact that the first um, Black director in, in, in Hollywood got a film made in the early 90s. So we're only 30 years into films made by women who look like me in the Hollywood film system. Right. So Colorado Public Radio will start to air Code Switch on Sundays at 11 a.m. starting this weekend. For people who aren't familiar with the show, what can they expect? You can expect a lot of really interesting discussions about race and identity, civil rights movement, whether it's about, um, I think we're going to start about Dungeons and Dragons. I love Dungeons and Dragons. You do. Our producer, Jess Kong, will love you. <laughs> that's, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I'm currently DMing a group here. I'm so excited for this. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All you get to hear Gene, my co-host, Gene Demby, play a game of Dungeons and Dragons. Is it his first time? Yes. So, I mean, that's something to look forward to. And we have a, an upcoming episode where we interview six comedians of color from all ranges of the Aspers uh, talking about jokes that they've told about race and how they approach that in their comedy. Just like really meaty, thoughtful, nuanced discussions about identity that I don't think you hear a lot or ever on, on the radio. Yeah, absolutely. So are there any stories that Code Switch is working on that might have some Colorado or Western ties? I mean, the fact that Don Cheadle is from Denver has always been very uh, important information in my life. <laughs> and I would love to, I would just love to sit down with Don Cheadle and Pam McGurr just like, what was, what's Denver like as, yeah. a, as a youth? You, you know, you could always come to Denver to interview him, see it like, you know, have him take you around his hometown. That would be fun. I would love, are you kidding me? Uh. <laughs> Um, do you have a favorite episode of Code Switch? Because the show has got a lot of attention in the summer of 2020, there is a really interesting episode that talks about why there's a, an influx of allies in the summer of 2020. It's like, why are so many people coming into the Black Lives Matters movement that weren't in there before because of, of George Floyd? And it's kind of forcing listeners to reckon with the reality of that decision. Let's listen to a little bit of that episode. I don't know. Maybe it's the cumulative effect of all this. I figured, why don't we just ask these people directly? So I posed the people on Instagram stories a question. Like, talk to me, y'all. I'm really curious mm -hmm. about what is happening in the world broadly or in your world that makes this moment different. And obviously, none of this is scientific, right? But people were really candid and forthright. And a lot of people, you know, said up front that they were really embarrassed and ashamed that they weren't paying attention before all this. Only a handful, maybe like five or six people, 
alluded to having browner or blacker circles over the last few years is part of what changed their stances on these things and what moved them. I want to point out that there were three dudes, actually, who said that their partners, who were women of color, finally called them out for being silent and for never speaking up on any of this stuff. A lot Mm. of people said that they started thinking about these really big foundational problems in American life. A while ago, they said that either Trayvon Martin's killing or Ferguson was a turning point in their thinking about a lot of stuff. And they said, you know, they had often been the only lonely white person Mm. in their social circles or their family who would speak up about stuff. Or they would be too scared to speak up or too scared to post on social media about this stuff because they thought it would be seen as unprofessional or would, like, you know, cause a lot of commotion. But now what people kept saying over and over is that as more white people around them are speaking up, there's more room for them to say the stuff that they've been thinking for a long time. There's more space Mm. for them to actually be vocal about these ideas. One person wrote, quote, It became inappropriate to be silent and seemed like there would be less social repercussions from being that white girl who was always talking about race and equality, which is extremely uncomfortable and embarrassing to admit. Jean Denby is the longtime co-host for Code Switch. Talk to me about your relationship with him. I mean, my relationship with Gene is mostly me bugging him all day about uh, things I'm always curious about. (laughs) I'm trying to, he's a little hesitant getting into my kind of uh, weird, again, weird enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. But my relationship with him is a lot of like brother, sister, like trying to um, figure out, I'm always curious about figuring out things. And he seems so knowledgeable about so many things that like I... There's like this weird repartee where I just, I, I pester him. It is, it is like a brother-sister relationship in that I'm just like always pestering him. But like, how much do you think Byron Allen is worth? That he's <laughs> able, that he's able to like buy the weather channel. Like this, these are things that like, those are the random messages he gets from me throughout the day. So my last question is probably my most important one for you. <clears throat> okay. What music are you listening to right now? And why is it Beyonce? Listen, <laughs> it is all Beyonce all the time, mixed with a little Japanese breakfast. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've just like, America's Got a Problem is my walk to the subway Absolutely. music. And Mitski should have been me. And then Tammy Terrell's version of All I Do is Think About You. Ooh. Nah, I haven't heard that one, so now I gotta listen to it. <laughs> You've definitely added for my playlist. Well, B.A. Parker, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. B.A. Parker co-hosts NPR's Code Switch with Gene Demby. She spoke with my colleague, Carla Jimenez. You can listen Sundays at 11. It's 11 a.m. here on CPR News and KRCC right after the best of Colorado Matters. All right. From one music legend to another. A dozen strangers are channeling the late Whitney Houston and dancing with somebody. They gathered at Denver's Washington Park the other day for a ritual called dork dancing. Young, old men, women. Dork dancing is a dance mental health campaign and 
The vision is to get the world dork dancing and uh, the hope is that we can spread this idea and uh, combat challenges in mental health. Ethan Levy of Denver is, well, the dork in charge. Things with anxiety, depression, loneliness, stress. You know, it's intimidating to dance in public. I did this with you, and there were a lot of people, by the way, giving us props, but it is something to put yourself out there. Yeah, most certainly. It's not a typical activity to be dancing out in public. Um, You know, it definitely challenges a lot of anxieties and concerns and fears of judgment, so it's a wonderful practice to confront that head-on and hopefully overcome some of those uh, anxieties. These gatherings take place weekly at Denver's Sloan's Lake as well, but it all started far, far away. I was in Vietnam during uh, most of the sort of COVID experience. I was on my way to China to teach English abroad, and then COVID happened and relocated to Vietnam, which was a safer place to be during the time. And it's kind of pandemic perfect in a way, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. uh, So that was pretty much the inspiration for starting it was in response to COVID-19 and the mental health crisis. Most or a lot of the world was in lockdown and uh, away from traditional forms of like exercise or connection with other people. And for me in my own personal journey, dancing in my own room was always something that like helped me feel better. And so I wanted to introduce this concept to the larger community to know, you know, you can dork dance to to feel better. And so, yeah, it was in response to COVID-19. All told, we danced for just under an hour. It felt freeing, invigorating, and based on at least my moves, I'm pretty sure I maximized the dorkiness. Learn more at dorkdancing.com. We'll have a link in today's podcast. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that may or may not be able to cut a rug. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.